Okay, so uh, this is Steve Ray, and I'm the host, I guess, for this week's Ontolog Forum session. This is one of the series on uh, ontology evaluation, ontology measurement and evaluation mini-series. And uh, this is the uh, second in the series, and uh, this time we have the pleasure and honor of Barry Smith, professor up at uh, University at Buffalo, and also the founder of the uh, NCOR, National Center for Ontology, Ontological Research. And uh, Barry is going to, I'm sure, give us his um, ever-stimulating and uh, exciting style of presentation. And uh, this time, the title of his talk is Ontology Evaluation in Biomedicine, where he's going to introduce the OBO Foundry Initiative. And with that, Barry, I'll let you take it away. Good. So um, I'm now on slide one, which uh, gives the subtitle, A Gold Standard Approach to Ontology Evaluation. And uh, that's what I'm going to illustrate now. I will not give details of the way in which we've already used this gold standard approach uh, in, um, in various collaborations with uh, NLP companies, for instance, in Europe. I will just describe the approach, which is um, uh, very much a work in progress, as you will see. And the reason for that is that it's very difficult to build gold standards. Uh, slide number two is about two types of ontology. I'm here only interested in ontologies which are being built for supporting scientific research in any area, but uh, I will be concentrating primarily on the area of biology and biomedicine. So I'm not interested in ontologies which are built to support, for instance, commercial transactions. Uh, there will be some overlap between the natural science ontologies and what I like to call administrative ontologies, for instance, when you need to administer or manage experiments or experimental research groups. But here I'm talking about those kinds of ontologies which support the content of scientific theories and reasoning with the content of scientific theories and reasoning with evidence for those scientific theories. And on slide three, I start a list of special features which scientific ontologies have and which distinguish them from at least some administrative ontologies. So I think the first criterion of a scientific ontology is that the scientists themselves believe that the entities referred to in the ontology or in the scientific theory which it supports actually exist. So scientific ontologies are realism-based. The entities which are re represented in the ontology exist independently of the ontology and of the theories which it supports. Now this is in many cases true for administrative ontologies, but not in every case. Part of the approach here is that the kind of gold standard which I'm going to advocate is possible because scientific ontologies are realism-based. And now, in slide number four, we see that for scientific ontologies, reusability is absolutely crucial. So your banking ontology does not need to interoperate with my banking ontology. But if we're both scientists and if we're investigating overlapping domains, then our ontologies need to be compatible. 
And if they're not compatible, then we have a kind of moral obligation to make them compatible by carrying out new experiments, for instance. Another feature of scientific ontologies is that they are not about individuals or instances. They are about universals. They're about what is general in reality. And again, this may be a difference between scientific ontologies and many administrative ontologies. And now on slide five, we have a definition of a scientific ontology, or at least a proposal for a definition. The idea is that we, we learn about the universals in reality by building theories. These theories are tested in experiments which deal with what is particular, but the theories themselves are about what is general. So the experiments tell us about what is general because they find a way of describing particular instances which are somehow typical. And uh, what we get then are general truths which form the scientific theory and which apply to many instances. Those general truths use terms, nouns, noun phrases, which form a kind of taxonomical organization. And the ontology is the encapsulation of the world of types or universals which this taxonomical organization embodied in a scientific theory represents. And so on six, slide six, we see a, a, a statement which cap captures the uh, standardization features of this. So an ontology standardizes the best current scientific terminology for a given domain. A scientific theory tells us about the world using terms. The ontology standardizes those terms in order to produce a shared representation of the types which the theory is about. And now on slide seven, the, um, the, there is uh, a question, why do we need terminological standardization? The first reason is because we need the terms used in our different scientific theories to be compatible with each other, which means that we need terminological additivity. And I give an example of a breakdown of terminological additivity, which is fortunately now being fixed. Until recently, the plant ontology defined a cell as a plant cell. Uh, there, is the, there is a breakdown of additivity here, which the plant ontologists would have realized as soon as they started to work with bacterial pathogens in plants. Their ontology would need to embrace cells which were not plant cells. And so they've changed the definition of cell now, so that a cell is indeed a cell and not a plant cell. That's the kind of standardization that I think ontology needs to be focused on. And now, a second aspect of standardization is calibration with reality. Now, here I want to draw quite a bit on the role of standardization in the realm of measurement terms. So, as you all know, there is in Paris a, a, a standardized meter, which was for a long time used as a, a means of calibrating the way in which people were making metric measurements across the world. Gradually, these uses of paradigms kept in Paris uh, are being replaced by 
definitions of units in terms of universal physical con constants. For my purposes here, there is no difference between those two ways of achieving a calibration between a unit term like meter and the corresponding type in reality to which the unit term uh, corresponds. The, the idea that I'm going to be defending is that unit ter terms are no different from scientific terms in general. The, the whole point of science is to attain and sustain a calibration with reality, which is represented in the simplest possible form in the relationship between the term meter and the paradigm meter, which is kept in Paris. Now, on slide nine, I, I just mentioned in response to some of Steve's remarks to my earlier slides, a uh, dispute which is now taking place in the area of metrology. Uh, the, there is the following fallacious argument. If we measure the same thing over and over again, then we get different values. And, of course, we can never be sure which one of these is the true value. And the conclusion is drawn in some circles that there are no true values. Now, this is an, a logical fallacy, which philosophers have been um, clear about for hundreds of years, but which, obviously, the metrologists are not always clear about. And I am informed that in order to keep happy those who take this argument seriously, there is now a proposal to standardize terminology in an ambiguous way so that this thesis that there are no true measurement values would be compatible with the standard. Now, this is an example of a way in which bad philosophy leads to bad standards. In the, um, the, the NIST website, one finds uh, some quite inf interesting information about the, um, uh, the history of standardization of units. And uh, on slide 10, you will see the, uh, the beginnings of the metric system. More interesting is slide 11, which tells about the, uh, the subsequent developments in England. Um, the, the Maxwell and Thompson introduced the CGS system, which is based on the centimeter, gram, and second. The CGS system became the uh, international standard system that I'll be talking about later. The crucial point here is that this system gave a boost to physics. The, the subsequent develop of, development of physics as an experimental science was made possible by standardization of units. And what I want to uh, suggest is that we can make a similar um, boost to the development of experimental biomedicine, which nowadays necessarily includes the use of computers by having a similar standardization, not of, um, not of unit terms now, but of scientific terms in general. If we look at the uh, international standard system of base and derived units, the SI system in slide 12, then we see that there are seven base units, and then there are many, many derived units. For instance, um, the, the Henry, which is a measure of inductance, which is defined in terms of the units for electric current and for magnetic flux, which is defined in turn in terms of the units for 
amount of substance and so forth. Now, these derived units are um, definable in terms of the basic units. So if we know what we need to know about the basic units, we can infer everything that we need to know about all the other derived units. The choice of base units is, to some extent, uh, a matter of alternatives, each one of which might have been equally good. So trivially, instead of taking the kilogram, we might have taken the gram. There are less trivial ways in which we have a certain freedom of choice there, but once we've made the choice, then the derived units follow as a matter of logic. We, the, we don't need to do any more choosing. Now, if we go on to slide number 13, we get some examples of um, uh, undefined or base units and derived units. And uh, the one interesting thing is that units can be multiplied and divided. This is an ontologically quite uh, peculiar phenomenon, which I think we need to do more work on in order to understand. It's that dividing and multiplying which enables the de derivation of derived units. Now, the first thing to be remarked upon, and this is slide 14, is that the International Standard System of Units is a qualitative ontology. It captures dimensions of reality to which quantities can be applied, but those dimensions themselves are qualitative. The difference between kilograms and seconds is not a quantitative difference, it's a qualitative difference. One of the more radical qualitative differences that you can see Another point is that, of course, the choice of units involves a degree of conventionality. So whether, whether we choose the gram or the, or the ounce or some other standard is not reflecting any distinction in reality which was there before we made the choice. It may be that there are some other areas, for instance, in, in defining the mole, which is the amount of substance, where there is a joint in reality which our choice of unit reflects. But for many of the base units, and therefore also for many of the derived units, we're dealing with choices which involve an element of conventionality. But now, slide, six, slide 15 points out that even though there is an element of conventionality in the choice of unit size, the dimensions themselves which those units measure out exist independently of our conventions. What this means is that an ontology of units, that is to say an ontology of these dimensions, the seven base dimensions and the various derived dimensions, is a true representation of an independently existing reality. It's a realism-based ontology, in other words. The quantities which are the divisions within the qualitative dimensions which are created through our choice of units are themselves universals in reality. That is to say, they can be, they can be repeated many times over. Many different things can simultaneously have a mass of five kilograms. That means that there are many, many instances of the universal mass of five kilograms. And now on slide 17... There, there is now a units ontology which has been developed in conjunction with the work on the phenotype quality ontology, and you can find the URL for this units ontology. This is a, 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 
effort to find a standardized representation of the universals in the realm of qualities which are needed in order to describe organism anatomy, organism behavior, and the like, which are needed in turn in order to have a coherent way of keeping track of genotype-phenotype correlations, which we need to do increasingly in order to understand things like disease. And if you go to slide 18, you will see uh, a, a small fragment of the Pato ontology of qualities, and you'll see that as we go further down this little hierarchy, then we find that a length of one millimeter is a length, which is a spatial quality, which is a quality. So Pato includes both qualitative universals and also quantitative universals. Pato also then includes the relation measurement of, which associates with each dimension in reality some standardized unit, either a base unit or a derived unit. So, for instance, weight is associated with a standardized unit of kilograms. And this whole ontology then, represented on slide 19, is tied in with a, uh, an ontology of other kinds of qualities, for instance, color or, or shape qualities, which are used then in making annotations of the shapes and sizes and behaviors of organisms of various sorts. Now, much of uh, my thinking on these matters has been inspired by Ingvar Johansson, who is a colleague of mine who has um, worked for many years on the ontology of physics and specifically on the ontology of physical dimensions. And um, Ingvar has made a, a, a long list of axioms governing the way in which qualities and quantities relate to each other. And I'm giving on slide 20 two examples of such axioms. So the first is that you can't t uh, a, an object cannot have two values of the same quantity dimension at the same time. The second is that if quantities are additive, additive for instance, length, then you, you can um, add such quantities only if you add the same quantity to the same quantity. So no material object can have two masses, and masses can only be added to other masses. Now, back to the SI standardization, which is slide 21. Another feature of the SI standardization is that it provides a controlled vocabulary. Each unit has a, a symbol, and these symbols are mandatory. So the words for the unit vary, and the spellings for the units, the, the, the uh, alphabets used to, to express those spellings vary from nation to nation. The symbols are always the same. And then slide 22. What this means is that the SI system of units gives you a gold standard controlled vocabulary for the expression of scientific results, which, because, the, because it's a controlled vocabulary, makes these results comparable and also capable of being integrated. It means that our measuring equipment can be cali calibrated because they're all calibrated or calibratable in terms of the same gold standard. And this is possible because the system of units itself is a true reflection of an independent reality. The calibration takes place only because there is a connection between the unit and the reality beyond. 
And now if we go to slide um, 23, then we, we introduce a new feature in all of this. Let's suppose that we have large amounts of measurement data of different sorts, and we want to, um, we want to make this measurement data integrated. Then we could create what we might think of as a map using this measurement data. And of course, we use standard units. Now, the standard units then serve as a kind of legend for that map. And I, as will become very clear in a minute, I am very keen on the idea that what ontologies are about is very similar to what we are doing when we make legends for maps. So if we go to slide number 24, if we have a good system of maps, a system of maps which is stretching across a whole continent or a whole world in such a way that one map is integrated with its neighboring maps, then that, what, what that means in part is that we need to have a good legend. The same legend should be used in the creation and in the printing of every single map in the collection. Now, exactly the same is true of a good ontology which is used in support of science. And what the Oboe Foundry is attempting to do is to be such a legend for all of the data produced by people doing research in biomedicine. I'll go back to the system of units again on, on slide 25. What, one of the things which Thompson and Maxwell and uh, their French predecessors discovered, and, and which is still being discovered today, is that it's not easy to create a system of units. So the, a system of units, even, even though it looks simple compared to some of the ontologies that we're dealing with in biology, contains problems. It may need to be revised as, as we learn more. And this is going to be true uh, of every ontology. Now, if we go to slide 26, this is just a reminder of how Maxwell and Thompson's CGS system led to many new possibilities in experimental science because of new ways of integrating results. Now, what I want is to create an analogous step forward in biology. We've already achieved something like this in chemistry as a result of efforts to systematize chemical nomenclature. We have similar efforts to systematize nomenclature in molecular biology on slide 27. And of course, we have on slide 28 the, 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 the world's greatest ever ontology uh, which should be our standard. We should be aiming to create ontologies like this in every domain, but in such a way that they are all integrated together. And this, on slide 29, is the goal of realist ontology, or the goal of the oboe foundry, which is to generalize this achievement to biology and medicine. And then on slide 30, we see the problem that we face. So in biology now, we're dealing with data which looks in its best shape like the, uh, the gene expression array, which is depicted on slide 30. We need to find ways of annotating such data, which are analogous to the ways in which legends for maps annotate maps. So we need annotations which tell us on slide 31 where in the body these genes are being more or less expressed, in what kinds of cells, in association with what kinds of disease processes, in other words, we need semantic annotation for the data. And fortunately, we have this. So the gene ontology, 
which is um, Googled on slide 32, the gene ontology has place four in Google for the word ontology. And this makes it the most successful single ontology by at least an order of magnitude. And if you go to slide 32, you will see that there are 6.4 million hits for gene ontology, which makes the gene ontology a de facto standard. It's like the international system of units. It's just much bigger. It's much sloppier still, but it's, um, it's subjecting itself as part of the Obo Foundry effort to a process of reform so that it will gradually be less sloppy. Now, the gene ontology provides a legend for gene expression data and for many similar kinds of data in molecular biology and increasingly also in medicine. It provides natural language labels like the names of the units in the measurement systems we've been talking about, which are designed to make the data which they annotate cognitively accessible to humans and algorithmically accessible to machines. And because the same labels are used to annotate many different kinds of data, those data resources themselves become integrated together. So on slide 35, we see that, the, uh, that we can use ontologies as, as legends for diagrams. On slide 36, they're used as legends for mathematical equations. On slide 37, they're used as legends for chemistry diagrams. On slide 38, we see that if we use the same labels, then we can link together all of these things with various kinds of databases. And there are now large multi-site consortia of biologists and medical researchers who are using this idea in order to link simulation experiments, mathematical models, images, videos with databases of chemicals and various other kinds of phenomena, including pathways, in order to try and find a coherent multi-dimensional map of complex disease phenomena. And what holds together the various parts of such complex maps is precisely the use of the common legend, and increasingly those common legends are being derived from the oboe foundry. Now, I haven't said anything yet about evaluation, so let's come to slide 39. 39 is about ontology mapping, and it's an illustration of what is wrong with ontology today. Remember that the system of units has to be calibrated with reality. It's not enough to have two systems of units which are calibrated to each other if we don't know how either of them relate to the world. A work on ontology mapping so far has been primarily work on relating one ontology with another without caring at all about how either of them will relate to the world beyond. So we have here a recipe for mapping which involves trying to find corresponding concept nodes with similar semantics. And then on slide 40, we have a re recipe for mapping where mapping is carried out in terms of finding the same mathematical structures in the hierarchies of an ontology. Not looking at the world beyond, but trying to map two ontologies because they use the same kinds of graphs. And then on slide 41, we find a, a definition of mapping in terms of 
finding semantic relations between entities in different ontologies like equivalent to or similar to or the same as. And again, because there's no concern here for what exists beyond the ontology, we could map one ontology to another ontology perfectly, and both of the ontologies would be garbage. Now, the idea which I am now going to defend is that we can get beyond the level of such vertical, sorry, horizontal mappings, which work whether the ontology is high quality or low quality equally well, by introducing the dimension of a gold standard. The idea is that we have experts manually prepare for each given manual matching problem a gold standard to which matching efforts could be compared. Now, this is already considered as one solution to the matching problem. It's also, of course, a solution to the evaluation problem. If we have a gold standard, then we have a way of... Um, determining whether which of two ontologies is the better or the worse, which is closer to garbage or further away from garbage. This is slide 42. Now, for that, of course, there are big problems with this gold standard methodology for ontology evaluation. This is slide 43. First problem is that uh, the gold standard methodology is very expensive. Um, so, in effect, every matching effort involves the effort of reduplicating the corresponding portion of science. Secondly, we don't always have the experts who are willing to devote the effort to create a gold standard ontology, and we don't know who the experts are. Sometimes we can't create a gold standard for political reasons, so we don't want to offend people by suggesting that they are not already achieving the standard of a gold standard. And then finally, of course, because we are humans and mortals and because science is changing so rapidly, gold standards, too, will always contain errors. And now we come to 44. Uh, this is the solution, or this is the solution I'm defending to the, the four problems of the gold standard methodology for ontology evolution just described. The oboe foundry is a subset of ontologies within the OBO, that is to say the Open Biomedical Ontologies Consortium Ontology Library. They, these are ontologies which include the gene ontology, which we talked about already as having a very, very large user base, and which is being reformed in order to increase the degree to which it captures the uh, best practices of logical consistency and coherence and so forth in ontology development. The, um, the subset of oboe foundry ontology developers have all agreed that they will reform their ontologies in the appropriate way, in such a way as to guarantee additivity. That is to say, all the ontologies will be consistent with each other. There will be a, uh, an evolution towards a state where there is one single ontology for each area of biomedical reality. And then each of the oboe foundry ontologies has procedures for scientific update. And now on slide 45, we can see how these procedures work. The, um, the, 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 an ontology like the gene ontology, and this holds for most of the ontologies in the oboe foundry, is created by full-time trained expert curators 
whose job is to read peer-reviewed scientific literature and to tag that literature using gene ontology terms and to create associations between gene ontology terms and terms in standardized databases of proteins, for instance. What this means is that those associations, which are called annotations, create a slowly growing map of the relationships between English language labels for common biological phenomena, on the one hand, and names of proteins, on the other hand, and now increasingly, names of many other kinds of chemical and biological objects. This is done by hand, it's done manually, it's done carefully, it's not done by data mining. And now on slide 46, we see the virtues of this approach. The, the problems which the curators face when they are trying to annotate literature lead to improvements in the ontology. For instance, if there is a term missing, which they need to use. When the ontology improves, this in turn leads to better annotations which in turn leads to an improvement in the ontology and so on in a virtuous cycle so that the ontology gets bigger and the annotations get richer. And this means on slide 47 that you get five bangs for your Go buck. So the Go is based on science because it's used by so many people to annotate so many different kinds of data for so many different kinds of organisms it gives you cross-species database integration at different granularities. So we are linking together course anatomy and clinical information with information about molecules. And it does this always through links to the entities in biological reality rather than through links to the concepts in people's minds. And this means that the, uh, the, the huge amounts of data which are being collected in biomedicine become semantically searchable through the English language phrases which are used within the Go. And now, the Oboe Foundry was started in, uh, in, in its early phase in 2003 with the creation of the Oboe Library, which is illustrated on slides 48 and 49. In uh, 2004, reform efforts were initiated, for example, linking the gene ontology to other oboe ontologies via logical relations. And then on slide 51, the third step was the creation of the oboe foundry as such. And on slide 52, the oboe foundry is described. It's a prospective standard. That is to say, each developer within the oboe foundry has to accept certain rules to guarantee interoperability of their ontologies with the other ontologies in the foundry. And now we have several ontologies which are being constructed ab initio in order to meet these criteria of interoperability. And many of these are being constructed by influential groups who have the authority to impose the use of oboe foundry ontology terms on the relevant communities of scientists. And on slide 53, you will see the ontologies within the oboe foundry which are which exist already in relatively good shape. Um, the top three yellow ontologies are undergoing rigorous reform, and the six at the bottom are all being created within the framework of the foundry. And then on slide 54, you will see uh, another way of dividing up the foundry. 
On slide 55, you will see a brief statement of some of the goals of the foundry. Above all, we're trying to make data reusable by having a systematic, consistent data schema in terms of which people can annotate their data from wherever it might be derived. But then most importantly, on slide 56, one goal of the Oboe Foundry is to serve precisely as a gold standard benchmark so that we can evaluate other ontologies built for different biomedical purposes by examining the degree to which they are compatible with the Oboe Foundry ontologies. So we're using the Oboe Foundry ontologies, some of which are quite small, as a system against which we can calibrate other biomedical ontologies, some of which are created by data mining. That is to say they are urgently in need of having some kind of gold standard against which they can be calibrated, since data mining methods in biomedicine are still not producing the kinds of quality of output that we would require. Now, in conclusion, there are two aspects of a gold standard. One aspect is that, it, it, as classically conceived, a gold standard should represent how a given domain would be described if it were described perfect, perfectly. Slide so an optimal therapy for a given medical problem, that which any doctor would use if he could use the best, is an example of a gold standard. But so also is the periodic table of the elements in chemistry. Uh, but secondly, a, a gold standard, we're now on slide 57, should guarantee consensus. A gold standard should not contain anything which is problematic or controversial. Everyone should agree that there is nothing controversial in using kilogram as a measure of length. And similarly, everyone should agree that there is nothing problematic in using the word death in order to refer to what we normally call death, which is what the gene ontology tells us to do. And now on slide 58, it's been established that even partial or tarnished or fuzzy standards are better than no standards at all. Where we're dealing with a rapidly evolving domain like biomedicine, we're not going to have the kinds of perfect standards that we can have elsewhere. But providing we understand the problems with our standards, then we can still use the standards as gold standards, providing they meet at least partway the two criteria which I've just described, which is to say they have to be close to capturing reality as it really is, and they have to be such as to enjoy a high degree of consensus. All of the Oboe Foundry ontologies meet those two requirements. Now, of course, the Oboe Foundry is partial, but to serve ontology evaluation, it, to serve evaluation to some degree, it's sufficient to have ontologies which capture reality only to some degree, providing the assertions contained in those ontologies are universally true. I'll explain what that means in a minute. In, when we're dealing with domains like biochemistry, gold standards will always be partial because we're dealing with non-closed worlds subject to rapid scientific advance. And that means that gold standards will always be evolving, but partial evolving gold standards can still serve evolution. And now slide 60. The, uh, what do I mean by universal? 
gold standards should be non-controversial because they, constain, they consist of universal truths. Gold standard ontologies can, should consist of the very simple kinds of truths, many of which will be true for reasons of logic alone. So they will consist of assertions like lung is an anatomical structure or lobe of lung is part of lung, which are analogous in their triviality to some of the trivialities that we find in the international system of units or to some of the trivialities that we find at the basis of physics, such as electrons have a negative electric charge. And now on slide 61, we have the, uh, the principle which flows from this recognition. Ontology is not rocket science. Ontology is about the trivial, non-controversial assertions, which we all know to be universally true. And we need to put those things in the ontology because computers need to be led by the hand. And even ontologies which are built out of such things can still serve the evaluation of other ontologies because if an ontology which has been built by a data mining or literature mining tool which has not been uh, subject to benchmarking against this kind of gold standard, it can still be full of errors. And then slide 62, which is the final slide. If a gold standard in the realm of ontology to support ontology evaluation is to work, then I believe it has to simulate the achievements of the international standard system of units. It has to be a simple, controlled vocabulary enjoying wide acceptance because it's uncontroversial, but which should be such as to allow cross-disciplinary and cross-experimenter calibration so that my data expressed in the terms of the standard can confirm or disconfirm your hypotheses and vice versa. And that's the end. So I hope someone can unmute themselves. Okay, this is Steve Ray. Uh, I unmuted myself, Peter, but um, I have a bunch of questions, but I'm going to hold off for the time being. I'm wondering, Peter, if you are able to see if anyone is pressing 1-1 who would like to ask a question, uh, maybe you could uh, process that. All right. Uh, so far, I don't see anyone who has their hands raised. How about if we ask everyone who wants to ask a question to now stop himself or herself and then uh, at least announce that you have a question, but don't don't start asking yet. And if we have more than one person, then we'll just take them in order. I have a question, Adrian Walker. Okay. Please. So can I go ahead? Yes. Uh, okay, um, uh, very very nice talk, and um, I understand a bit better um, uh, how the biological ontologies are fitting together as a result of your talk. Um, there's very often in this field a reference to semantic search um, being more powerful than Google and so on, but it, it's kind of hard to come across um, examples that you can actually, you know, go into Netscape and run. Um, I, I was wondering if you have any uh, pointers uh, online or offline to actual semantic searches that work, either either papers about this or um, or things that one can actually go and uh, and try out uh, on, on on the keyboard. Uh, my own personal favourite, actually, is a tool called Go PubMed, which is okay. built by uh, the 
biologists in Dresden in Germany. Go PubMed uses the gene ontology hierarchies as a very simple way of searching PubMed. And this gives you various kinds of simple benefits over PubMed. First of all, you get a hierarchically organized set of results for your search, uh, which means that you can also work out very simple statistical um, questions by looking at the numbers of articles which have been published about specific subcases from the main case that you're interested in. And um, there are still some uh, aspects of GoPubMed which need improvement. So at the moment, the, the way in which it searches GoPubMed re rests on the use of a mere string matching algorithm. But the organization of the results that you get is nevertheless very useful, which, which is an indication, I think, of the utility of the kind of methodology that I'm defending. And, and thank you, Barry. And is there a paper that sort of spells out what you just said and shows? Yeah, if you go to Google and, and search for Go PubMed, yeah. then you will find both the website and also various kinds of publications about the, uh, the tool itself. And you can also try out the tools. So. Okay, that's, a, that's, that's everything I asked for. Thank you. Again, if anyone has any questions, I think, if I understand Peter's instructions correctly, you press 1-1 one, one on your phone. And that'll start you in a queue that Peter can then refer to. Right. I still don't see any hands raised, but I, I have a couple of – oh, I, I do see one, uh, someone from – it's 781 code. If you would unmute yourself, uh, the star three, uh, then please start asking your question. Hello, this is uh, Ken Batlovsky. Hello? Okay. Yes, uh, we can hear oh. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I do have a little question here. You mentioned that uh, these, uh, this terminology is obtained through a curation process from the literature. The, uh, but in, in, say, the physics community, that's not how I see it being done there. There's just an agreement among individuals in the community that standard terminology is to be used. So kilogram has just one meaning. You know, it's just there's, there's an understanding that those who write the literature in the first place are using the standard terms. Is there some way that that could happen in the biological literature? Is there some reason why researchers couldn't simply agree to use the terminology, the, the ontology, in the first place? Yes. So, um, I, I, looking back now from a perspective of um uh, uh, more than 100 years of scientific development, it seems as if in physics people could just sit down and uh, uh, we're talking now about physical unit expressions, I suppose. People could just yeah. sit down and decide on the terms to use. But in fact, that decision re reflected a long period of complex negotiations and arguments. And uh, similarly in chemistry, we, we look now at the... Uh, uh, the, the, the symbols that we have for the chemical elements and we look at the various uh, methods for expressing chemical compounds symbolically. And some of them look as if they were just a matter of uh, top-down imposition or of instantaneous agreement by the people involved. But every single one of those was an achievement over some years or some, some decades, centuries even. 
And with, in fact, chemical terminology is still relatively in flux. So there are still many features of standardization chemistry which need to be sorted out. Uh, now, the biologists have an even worse case. Um, the, the drive for um, biological standardization of terminology which led to the gene ontology and which led to some of the more successful parts of the, of the ovo foundry generally came because of the growth of model organism research. We are now creating strains of model organisms which are tailor-made in order to provide counterparts of human disease phenomena or specific kinds of human genetic mutation. This means that a fly is not a fly and a mouse is not a mouse anymore. But you need to say things about the different strains of flies or mice that you're studying in such a way that other fly and mouse biologists will be able to use your data. And that led to the gene ontology standardization. The original standardization was a, a very much like what you described. It was created by a small group um, on the basis of dictionaries and the like and of the basis of terms that they were using that the process of annotation that I was describing is the process which has been applied ever since in an increasingly systematic way to maintain that terminology in the face of discovery of errors and gaps. Also to maintain that terminology in the face of uh, discoveries of evolutionary changes in the biological reality itself. So the reality changes. Uh, even if our ontology is correct in one year, it may be incorrect in a specific detail the next year because the, the underlying biology has in fact been changed. Such things don't happen quite so often in physics. They, they do happen in chemistry. Thank you. That was, that was very helpful. Um, so far, we've got I mean, uh, queued up uh, Steve mentioned you have uh, Steve Ray men uh, mentioned you have several questions. Peter Yim has several questions, and is uh, Mustafa Jira uh, also raised his hand? So your call, Steve. Steve. Ray, uh, you're muted. So Sorry, I think I was muted. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, yep. I can hear you now. Okay. Um, Barry, I have a couple of observations and a question. Um, first of all, I agree with you that, uh, well, I guess it's prudent for you to start with the natural sciences versus, versus uh, what you were calling, uh, I can't remember what the term you used, but I would Administrative call it Excuse me? Administrative ontologies. Yes, administrative ontologies or uh, arbitrary, man-made, if you like, concept ontologies, yeah. which is yeah. kind of the world I'm in in terms of, say, electronic commerce or engineering systems or whatever. Right. Uh, I think that's, first of all, higher chance of success simply because I think, as you implied, you have a ground truth which is out there, yeah. which uh, in a sense is – the meta gold ontology because it's just out there and anyone can in interrogate it experimentally or otherwise, uh, which isn't the case, of course, in these uh, administrative ontologies because it's just what people decided to define whatever concept. Exactly. So that is 
unfortunately means it's bad news for those of us who are trying to get, uh, you know, interoperability among these uh, more humanly created ontologies. But nevertheless, we will strive on. Uh, another comment I have, though, is that um, you made allusion to the idea of an optimal therapy, for example, and I presume you're conceding that uh, that's at, at the time that you're working, uh, that's the best we know how to do. But I guess one comment I have is I'm wondering, is it really realistic to assume that there are um, undisputed, a meaningful number of undisputed statements that one could make about much of any field, uh, especially given an open world, that some nitpicker couldn't take issue with. Uh, what are your comments on that? Yes, so what we discovered in building the Obo Foundry is that very often you can get undisputed truths quite easily if you, if you take careful attention to the order uh, in which you express those truths. So there is a relationship between adults and children, for instance. Children come before adults. Children precede adults. Children become adults. Uh, but you, anybody can nitpick any of those statements by pointing out that many children die before they become adults. Right. And See, now if you switch it around and you say, every adult was once a child, then that's a universal truth. Now, huh. it turns out that you can find many, many such universal truths by paying attention to order in that sense. I see. Okay, and then my other question, which is as much curiosity as anything, your comment on the resolution you made reference to early in your talk about the issue of uh, true value and whether one can ever measure a true value of something yep. in the context of the SI units. Um, you, you stated that that would be, you know, bad philosophy to dismiss the notion of true value. Yeah. And I guess I wondered if you could comment on that a little more, because certainly it's the IEC, the International Electrochemical Commission, Electrotechnical yep. Commission, that uh, holds that statement to be true, that there is no such philosophically meaningful statement as yep. a true value which I assume they're, you know, making reference to, yep. say, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle or something. That yep. there's so there, there, there are special cases which arise at the level of quantum mechanics, clearly. Uh, but nearly everything that we're dealing with is not going to be affected by those special uh, considerations that arise at the quantum level. So we're, we're very rarely dealing with quantum measurements. Okay. So uh, when we are dealing with quantum measurements, I agree that we need to be very careful about claims that we might make about the existence of a true value. The, right. the kinds of problems that we face at higher levels have to do with the, um, the granularity or the sensitivity of our measuring e equipment, and they have to do with the fact that the thing that we're measuring may very well change uh, in, in, in the fine detail that we're concerned about um, in such a way that it changes more quickly than we can measure it. So those kinds of concerns do indeed arise even at non-quantum levels. And I think that the correct answer to those people who say that there is no true value is to point out that if you have some, some, something that you need to measure, uh, some apple, let's say, on your desk, then you can say all kinds of things about the true value of the diameter of that apple. For instance, it's less than um, 100 miles, and it's more than one centimeter if it's, if it's a fully grown apple. 
Um, well, actually, even a wave mechanical person would dispute that, you know, the extent of the wave representation of an apple does, in fact, uh, extend infinitely. So then we need to be very careful about what we mean by the diameter of the apple. Right. I guess so my... Uh, I think that if we get... If we define what we mean by the diameter of the apple carefully, then even though our measuring equipment will have a certain threshold of sensitivity, we can still give an interval within which the true value might lie. Oh, sorry, within which the true value must lie. And if, if that statement which I just made is coherent, then there must be a true value, even though we can't know what the true value is. This is, this, this is not a trivial issue, I agree. Yeah, but in fact, you are stating actually close to what the IEC is saying, although they didn't make that last inference, they, they are referring to all measurements within a limit, an upper and lower yeah. limit, yeah. and make no statements as to the probability of where it lies within those limits. Good. And, so and then I would say that there's no limit to the degree to which tomorrow we may not invent more sensitive measuring equipment, which means that we can find a narrower threshold within which the true value must lie. And the true value is then the limit extended into the infinite future of such narrower and narrower determinations of thresholds on the basis of ever more sensitive measuring equipment. And, of course, the, 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 at some point we do indeed face the quantum mechanics issue. Um, but I'm confident that that quantum mechanics issue can be uh, isolated from the issues that we face when measuring the, those entities which belong to the domain where Newtonian mechanics holds almost universally. Uh, and let me just make one final comment, and I'll yield yeah. the floor back to you. I think what that is revealing to me is that the issue comes back to one of context, perhaps, that um, you know, you're basically talking about the context of Newtonian mechanical, you know, macroscopic world. Yes. You can probably nail down a certain self-consistent ontology, which, and there may be a disjoint or non-disjoint other context, which is down in the quantum mechanical world. We may have a different ontology there. So maybe there isn't one single self-consistent uh, gold standard ontology, even for the physical world, but rather you know, well-defined context with perhaps slightly fuzzy boundaries between them. There is a French physicist called Omnes, Roland Omnes, who has addressed this point in what to me is the most uh, satisfactory way. And there is indeed a large grain of truth to what you just said, but he convinced me that there is nevertheless a consistent overarching single ontology which can deal both with the quantum systems and with the Newtonian systems, or the quasi-Newtonian systems, he calls them. Okay. So there is uh, hope. <laughs> All right. I'll try not to be cynical. Okay. Thank you. Peter? Yes. yes uh, this is, uh, Peter Yim here. Uh, actually, my first question has already been asked by Steve. I mean, it's, again, related to the... Uh, the quantum mechanics uh, arena, and I guess with uh, Barry, when you say we, you are referring to the sort of biomedical or the oboe foundry 
the uh, reality and not sort of the scientific ontology reality. Yes, I was, I, I'm focusing nearly everything on the biomedical case. And there are some quantum systems which are biomedically relevant. So the, the vision system, for instance, depends on light sensitivity, and, and that depends on photons, and photons are quantum system entities. But leaving that aside, uh, I, I'm confident that we can ignore systems having to do with uh, the quantum uncertainties which arise when we're doing uh, other kinds of science. I think you sort of clearly expounded on, on, on the issue. My, my question, I mean, I actually have two more. Uh, the, on, on the approach that you were uh, explaining today, uh, I trust you being um, in the realm of controlled vocabulary, con the terminology, and the taxonomy uh, without sort of uh, stepping into the uh, – the, the the other aspect of ontology, like I mean, computational uh, requirements or, or capabilities, and so on. Uh, could you uh, ex uh, maybe uh, tell us if there are sort of some uh, approach uh, thoughts further down the road that will take uh, this gold standard from terminology and taxonomies into maybe the, 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 the broader uh, scope of what the uh, AI scientists or the ontologists, formal ontologists, would, would uh, be addressing these days? Yes, so this is a uh, $64,000 question, which I unfortunately do not have a clear answer to. Um, some of the OBA foundries are, in fact, being developed using OWL-DL, and I think that the scope of the oboe foundry ontologies quite generally is roughly equivalent to OWL-DL in many aspects. So the ISA hierarchies which, which constitute the oboe foundry ontologies are ISA hierarchies which could be captured using the resources of, uh, of a language like OWL-DL. Some of the part-up relations that we need to capture, however, go beyond OWL-DL in their expressivity, or at least they go beyond what can be expressed using OWL-DL in, in a single uniform natural way, which would be found easily intelligible to the biologists who use these ontologies. And one of the crucial uh, presuppositions of the success of the OVO foundry is that we have many, many biologists who are taking these ontologies seriously and using them to annotate different kinds of data. What this means is that if we create versions of the oboe foundry ontologies which are not intelligible easily to biologists, then they won't use them, and then we will defeat the very purpose of the foundry, which it depends upon many uh, users. If it's to be a consensus gold standard, then it has to be constantly being criticized and checked by biologists using the ontologies in different kinds of contexts. So that means that we are going very slowly in addressing the issue of what precisely the appropriate computational representation for the foundry as a whole might one day be. So at the moment, we're building the ontologies in a rather neutral way, 
sometimes employing uh, protege owl, for instance, is the tool, sometimes employing the oboe um, uh, house uh, format, the oboe um, uh, format for building ontologies, which also has uh, biology-friendly software associated with it. Um, the, uh, one of the oboe foundries was built using protege frames, using the older protege approach to ontology building. Eventually, I am sure, we will have a single computationally coherent representation or even several single computationally coherent representations of these ontologies. But at the moment, we're still trying to remain neutral and cautious. So uh, would, would, is, let's say, axiomatization or extensions from accepted ontology uh, uh, on your roadmap? Oh, absolutely, yes. So um, the, the the moment, some of the oboe ontologies are using uh, a, the simple upper-level ontology, which I've been developing with various um, associates for some years now, called BUFFO, Basic Formal Ontology. But there is a quite serious effort to try and align BUFFO with the top level of SUMO. And there is also a project to try and align BUFFO with the top level of um, of Dolce, uh, which would mean that we would have, at least for the very top, uh, some sort of uniform upper ontology approach. The reason why the upper ontology has to be rather simple and rather small is because the biologists will not accept an upper ontology which includes treatments of biological types which are alien to what the biology in their eyes should be. And so a big ontology like Psych, for instance, which includes quite a lot of biology, would not be satisfactory uh, as a, a, a part of the oboe foundry because it would conflict with much of the biological content of the oboe foundry ontologies themselves. So small is beautiful when it comes to upper ontology. Great. Thank you. One, one uh, last thing. We had uh, Chris Schutt, uh speaking last week at Ontolog. Yep. So it said some alignment or uh, going on between, let's say, what the oboe uh, terminologies are uh, with the uh, Lexgrid effort? So Chris and I are both part of the National Center for Biomedical Ontology, and much of the work on the oboe foundry has indeed been evolving within the framework of the National Center for Biomedical Ontology. Uh, Chris, I think it's fair to say, comes from the clinical side, where the, most of the oboe foundry work thus far has come from the biologist side. And biologists and clinicians have a different approach to data sharing. So biologists are very keen to have common standardized vocabularies, which will enable large bodies of data to be made accessible to different groups for different purposes. Clinicians have grown up with the assumption that data will be largely in-house, it will be used by the people who collected it for their own in-house purposes, and there is therefore much less concern for global terminological standardization and much more concern for uh, local disciplinary terminologies and the like. Now, I see myself as working from the biologist side to try and extend the degree to which people working at the frontiers of biology and medicine use standardized global vocabularies 
to serve data reusability. I see Chris as working from the clinical side to try and add greater facility to the lexicons used by clinical um, researchers in such a way that they would move towards a greater degree of accessibility, which would indeed support then a greater degree of reusability. I hope that we meet halfway. And, um, we, we need to address this question in, in course of time. So, so it's not there, there's no sort of mind spike each time. Uh, no, sorry, I can't hear, hear the, 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 the end of your sentence. It's not being in the plans to align from the beginning. Uh, no, uh, the, 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 the LexGrid effort predated the NCBO and the Oboe Foundry predated the NCBO, and so they have developed um, independently of each other. There, there are, however, positive signs. Uh, so um, we are hopeful that there will be some sort of an alignment with, uh, between the Oboe Foundry disease ontology and the, or the, what we hope will be the Oboe Foundry disease ontology and the disease portions of the SNOMED terminology, which is part of LexGrid. Mm -hmm. So there, there, are, there are hopeful signs, but the, the, um, the, the, each step needs to be made very carefully, and it, it involves a lot of hard work, typically. Of course. Well, th thank you very much. So maybe the next uh, set of questions will come from Mustafa Jara. Uh, so, Mustafa, uh, could you unmute yourself first with a star three, and then uh, when we acknowledge that we can hear you, uh, you might start asking your questions. Mustafa? Uh, queued up behind Mustafa, someone from area code 765, so please get your Go ahead, Mustafa. No, we can't quite hear you. Yes. Okay, well, we still can't hear you, Mustafa. In fact, you are introducing some echo into the line as well. Can you start speaking, Mustafa? Well, Peter, this is Steve. I'm afraid Want to move to the next? Uh... Hear you. Yeah, we, we could go to the next end, Mustafa. We actually have a chat session. You might to type out your, your, your questions there or even type the question into the, uh, to post the question to the Ocelot Forum, and we could address it that way, too. Uh, so the next person uh, is someone from the area code 765. You have your hands up, and if you unmute yourself uh, with a star three, that would be nice. And if I request to use the phone again, uh, because you're introducing echo to the line. Hello? Yes. We hear yes. You. Please identify Hello? yourself. 
Yes, we can hear yeah, you. Please uh, identify yourself. Oh, sure. My name is Zhangjin uh, Li. I'm a PhD student from uh, Purdue University. Hello? Okay. Okay. Thank you, Professor I'm from I have three questions. Yes. Uh, so the first question is uh, whether completeness and accuracy should be a, a preconditions to for developing a certain ontology. For example, we are de developing engineering ontology. But one problem I had, um, I'm, I'm facing with is uh, because in engineering, so we are uh, creating new stuff. That means there are always like new, new product or new pro materials produced. So that means if you have ontology to represent engineer domain, so that means this one will always be incomplete. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so shall I ask your first question? question? So my first uh, question is about, hello? Yes, so I'll answer your first question first. Um, I think that I should have made clearer in my statement of the gold standard that uh, completeness is not an issue. So we should always be striving for completeness, as in every science, every scientific endeavor, but we will never achieve it for exactly the reason that you stated. The world is changing. The, the world, our knowledge of the world is growing. Uh, but we should be striving for completeness. That's the first thing. Okay. But if we are to serve as a gold standard, then we need to strive for accuracy in the following minimal sense. Every statement in any oboe foundry ontology has to be such that it enjoys consensus agreement among biologists who are studying the, uh, the relevant phenomena that it holds universally. Now that's it sounds as if it's very hard to achieve, but in fact, provided you are modest enough to accept that ontology should contain quite trivial kinds of assertions, then it is achievable to a degree which is greater than you might otherwise suppose. Now, there are all kinds of issues about how you achieve it, but the gene ontology and the foundational model of anatomy, which are the two most mature parts of the oboe foundry illustrate in different ways that it is achievable. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, can I, have, I still have two more questions. Can I still yes. go ahead? Uh, my second question is, um, uh, what are the importance of using a certain standard language in representing the ontology? For example, uh, a lot of people talk about using all OWL to represent the ontologies. Some people use 
like RDF or X, or even XML. But what my uh, one problem I'm having now is actually in, in our ontology there are a lot of axioms or relations which are domain specific. So basically using choosing either language should be okay, but there is really no advantage and from from our point of view of I yeah. mean of either either one. So I will illustrate the, the problem here, which I, I, I do not have a solution for, but I think that we, we need to address this problem quite systematically. Um, the, the, the foundational model of anatomy is the, the most sophisticated of all the existing biomedical ontologies. So it's more sophisticated in, in some ways than the gene ontology. The, the, the FMA exists now in three different computational representations. It exists in the protege frame format. It exists mm -hmm. as an OWL-DL ontology, and it exists as an OBO format ontology. I imagine that the FMA will exist in other computational formats in the future because I think that ontologies need to exist in different computational forms to address different kinds of computational uh, problems and different to, to work with different kinds of computational environments. But now we have the question, if the FMA exists in these three different forms, what is the FMA? And I am tempted to give the answer that the FMA is the English uh, the, the, the form. The FMA is a, a, a linguistic artifact made of phrases in the English language joined together by relational expressions in the English language to form mm -hmm. a very large database of English language sentences. Now, that is not entirely satisfactory, but it's the best answer I can give to the question, what is the FMA, given that it exists in three different computational forms? I hope okay. that, that, that in a few years' time, we will be able to address these questions more sensibly. Okay. Okay, yeah. Uh, second, so my last question is, uh, I just wonder what are the challenges in, in mapping different ontologies or in aligning different ontologies from your point? Uh, so um, when, we, uh, when we look at the best work which has been done so far in aligning ontologies, or at least the work which I know best, which is in the biomedical domain, then we find that the, that automatic alignment does not produce very good results, and that mm -hmm. the alignments which are more or less uh, coherent reflect a great deal of human manual um, correction. Um, now, what I'm suggesting is that this, this state of affairs can be somewhat improved by supplementing human manual correction with the use of the Foundry ontologies to support the humans, in at least in part of the automatic uh, dimensions involved in ontology alignment. And there is some evidence to this. So there is some literature now about how using the FMA to support the alignment of other anatomy ontologies, for instance, involving different organisms, can actually bring about better results than you would get if you did not use the FMA. And that is exactly the kind of benchmarking supported um, alignment uh, technology which the Arbor Foundry is designed to supply. Okay. 
Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Um, so far, we have one more hand up. That's, uh, again, Mustafa. Uh, Mustafa, you have also successfully logged to the chat session. Uh, can you type out your question uh, at the chat, chat session? You think? If not, uh, please try again. I mean, to unmute your phone with a star three, and let's see if we can hear you properly. Hmm. Go ahead, Mustafa. I guess we're no. not going to get Mustafa. No, unless he types out his question. So I don't have anyone else lined up. So, Steve, you want to take over? Okay. Um, well, I think this is uh, really interesting, actually, Barry. I appreciate the fact that um, you're speaking in terms that a non-logician like myself can actually understand. <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, my intuition tells me that this is the right track. I, I don't know if the universe is going to be small enough for us to be able to do this in all realms, obviously, but uh, I well, think... We did it with the units. Well, <laughs> we got, it may we, not we, be as clean... We've got a long way to covering many realms with the units. Yeah, that's true. That is true. So I guess there is hope. But um, So um, I think this is great. I think this, is, this has the ring of... Uh, validity to me anyway, but uh, of course that's just an emotional reaction. But anyway, I guess I just want to thank you again. Uh, in the absence of any further questions, uh, this will be racked into the annals of history in the Ontolog Forum, and uh, I'm going to stew on this one for a while, and I think I'll be, I know I will be getting back to you probably with some additional questions down the road. So, uh, Good, and thank you to you for organizing it, and to Peter for organizing it, and for pleasure. And I will say to everyone that the uh, next in the series of ontology evaluation is uh, Werner Kusters uh, in the month of January. You probably have seen the email to that effect that Peter's already sent out. So um, stay tuned for that after the uh, holiday season, and um, and that and that's a good segue to say I wish everyone have a good holiday. And with that, I think we are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.